Good morning, Bethel. Let's bow together as we come to God's Word, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. This is the day that you have made. Thank you for the chance we have right now to come to your Word, to gather together from our homes and to hear from you. And we invite you to speak to our hearts. In this last week, we know that there has been many different things going on, and some who are watching right now have had some really highs and wonderful times. Others have had some really hard struggles or got some really difficult news. We ask that you would meet with us in the midst of whatever we're going through. Encourage our hearts, strengthen us with a glimpse of you, and transform us that we might obey to follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the great dangers of being around somewhere or someone for a lengthy period of time is it gets so easy to start to take them for granted, doesn't it? It gets so easy to start to assume upon things and, and just without even realizing the exceptional slides into the mundane, the, the mesmerizing be kind of comes, hmm, meh. You know what I mean? Like this can happen in all kinds of different settings. It can happen in marriage where, where those, those initial, you know, butterfly giddies of the first date dissipate into, you know, the snide snarl of a, what's for dinner. You know, this, this can happen around our homes or with a new car where we're at first, it feels so shiny and new and wonderful. And, and when we bring it home or walk in the door for the first time, it's like, I can't believe this is ours. But now it's like, surely we could get something a little newer, couldn't we? A little more room. Or this can happen in our faith where we get so settled in that the initial fire and passion for the Lord fades into some barely flickering coals, where, where the, the vibrancy of God's word fades into this sort of, yeah, whatever. Like, it's just some stories from a long time ago. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Our text in Joshua chapter 10 that we're going to be in today confronts us, challenges us, and I am praying shakes us today. When God moves, we must never take it for granted. Today, I want to lead us as we look into God's word to see that when God moves, we must never take it for granted. And, and there's two key takeaways that I am praying and want to lead us into from God's word today. Two things, nuggets that I want us to really grab onto. First one is this, is that we each see in God's word the hand of God at work with profound clarity. And then second, that we all give God, the glory that he deserves. I want each and every one of us, as we study God's word here today, to, to come away with this crystal clear vision of like, look at what God has done. Look at the mighty, profound, amazing, mind-blowing work that God has done right here in his word. And wow, it just leads me to be like, oh, God, I praise you for who you 
are, for what you have done. There is no way anything could have happened unless it was your hand, God. None of this is possible unless it was you. And then we praise the Lord. But this is not just a passage and a story and a lesson from ancient days with ancient Joshua. We are going to also see that we too, even though we might have gotten so used to it or settled in or slid into the mundane and the meh, that God has given you and me these same God glory stories that we must not take for granted, but that lead us to praise him. Let's begin in Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Now Adonai, uh, Adon, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king. And the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. The, the fame and renown of all that God has done through Joshua and through the Israelites is continuing to ripple throughout this entire land. And the king of Jerusalem here has heard all about it. It says in verse 2, continues, he and his people were very much alarmed at this. They were frightened, distressed, in turmoil because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all of its men were good fighters. Gibeon was strong. Gibeon was, was mighty. Gibeon was a, a valiant force. And they just gave up to the Israelites. They just waved the white flag. And, and, and the king of Jerusalem hears about this, and he's just fuming and raging. And like, how could they? How could our people stab us in the back and go with them? We must teach them a lesson. So Adon Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhi, king of Lashish, and Debir, king of Eglon, come and help me attack Gibeon because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. And so these five forces converge on the Gibeonite traitors. The five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lashish, and Eglon, joined forces, we read in verse 5. In the original language there, in that sentence, actually, although our English tries to kind of neaten it up and compact it, actually in that, it repeats the, the words king over and over and over again, actually six times in this one verse. The kings of the Amorites, it says, the king of Jerusalem, and then it repeats, the king of Hebron, and the king of Jarmuth, and the king of Lashish, and the king of Eglon. I'll circle back in a minute to why that is important. All of these kings, they, they moved up with all of their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. This mighty force of pagan kings lay siege against their own people, against these cutthroat traitors from Gibeon, from their own land, to teach them a lesson. And as these surrounding forces start to attack, Gibeon sends out one messenger for, for a final, you know, Hail Mary pass, a final last-ditch effort. Their only hope, really, 
a messenger who travels down the road and runs to the camp where Joshua and the people of Israel are down beside the Jordan. The note says from the messenger to Joshua, do not abandon your servants. Come to us quickly. Save us. Help! Because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. They're, they're terrified. Their lives are at risk. And they cry out with one last hope. Please, Joshua, don't let us die. Do you remember the promise that you made to us? As we read this story, we see very clearly within the text that we're going to be in, two distinct halves to this story. The end of verse 6 really marks the the transition point, the turning point, the, the buzzer at the end of the first half before the clock starts again to kick in to the second half. We see two very distinct halves going on here. And and this isn't only that the setting changes of what's happening in our story. That is true. But there is also two very distinct emphasis between these. One that really comes to the forefront. The spotlight is upon them in the first half. And then they fade into the shadows and the spotlight is drawn onto another. In this first section... There is one word that comes up, repeated in in six verses, 15 times. 15 times. One word comes up here. Did you catch what that word was? Did you see it? It's the word king. The word king. The king of Jerusalem, the kings of Ai and Jericho were destroyed. All the kings that came to be a part of this mob against Gibeon, the king, 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 king. We get this emphatic sense of of drawing our attention to the power and force and prestige of these monarchs of the Amorites. All eyes are focused on these mighty men who who rule and reign with an iron fist, who are coming to display their their bravado and their power and their you-can't-mess-with-us. You need to know who is important. You need to know who rules this land. It's the kings. This whole first section is trying to drive home that point. The spotlight is square upon the kings. And then, at verse 7, we see a transition. We see a turning point. It's... It's the cliche statement of sports, right? But the second half was a totally different ball game. The second half of our text begins, and from here on through, not once is the word melech, the Hebrew word for king, come up again. It vanishes. In fact, they, they vanish from the story. They fade into the shadows, and the spotlight comes on to Another, another is brought to the forefront with all emphasis and eyes fixed upon them. I wonder if you can see and find it as we read through the second half. Verse 7 begins, So Joshua marked up to Gilgal with his entire army, including the best fighting men. Joshua gets this message from the Gibeonites, and immediately he rallies his men. Not a hint of wavering or wondering you know, all those pesky Gibeonites who kind of fooled us and tried to trick us in the con job. No, no. Just immediately he gets them all up and sends them on their way. They hit the road. We see in verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. God reassures 
and promises Joshua his favor with him. This is so significant because remember last week, if you were with us, last week we saw this tendency that we all have. We're all leaky tubs. We're all prone to wander. We have this bent away from the Lord. And, and last time we got Joshua into so much trouble in the people of Israel because they didn't come and inquire of the Lord. But this time, right off the bat, we see here that Joshua connects up with God and God says, yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. Go. Verse 9 says, after an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The typical three-day journey, Joshua and his men take in less than one day. They march all day, all night, arrive upon Gibeon as the sun is starting to rise. And these pagan, these pagan um, kings surrounding Gibeon, they're probably just, you know, like wiping the sleep off of their eyes as they're just getting ready for the morning season. To their shock, there is now an army all around them. It says in verse 10, the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. Get that. This is so important. Who does it say threw them into confusion? Yes, Joshua and the army shows up, but it is not the soldiers. It is the Lord who sends them into terror and chaos. It is the Lord who scares these people. It is the Lord who threw all of the enemy soldiers into hysterics. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, and Israel defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel hits them quick and hard with a striking blow, and like while the coals are still cooking the coffee for the morning breakfast, the men have left and fled for the hills, taken off running, Israel, it says in verse 10, continues, pursued them along the road going up to Beth Haran and cut them down all the way to Azekah and to Makedah. We are talking here, okay? I know none of these places necessarily make a whole lot of reference to us. You know, it would be like trying to tell an ancient Israelite about Sarnia and Godrich and Strathroy and uh, Ilderton, right? We, we, we don't necessarily know where they are, but we're talking about here from Gibeon to Azekah is 32 kilometers along the road, okay? 32 kilometers along the road. From Gibeon to Mecca is almost 60 kilometers. This is like by foot from like here to Sarnia almost. They chase them and chase them and chase them down these dirt roads and along the mountain. As they fled, it says verse 11, before Israel on the road, down from Beth Haran to Azekah, the Lord hurls large hailstones down on them from the sky. The Lord, the Lord not only sends them into turmoil as they're just getting up in that morning, thinking they're about to win this incredible victory, sends them into great confusion. But as these pagan soldiers are fleeing, the Lord sends these massive hailstones from the sky. For 40 years, the people of Israel saw God's care and provision as every single day he sent bread from the sky to feed them. Now on this day, they see God's power and protection as he rains down hailstones upon their enemies, giving them victory. Verse 11 finishes off, more of them died from hailstones then were killed by the swords of the Israelites. So get this, it, it would seem here from what we're reading 
Not only are these giant hailstones, but these are like heat-seeking missile hailstones because we get no inclination whatsoever that any of the Israelites who are chasing right after them get hit by any of these hailstones. These bowling ball hailstones from heaven come down and they only hit in the spots exactly where these pagan soldiers are running from and don't hit a single scratch upon any of God's people chasing right after them. And they take out more soldiers than all the swords of all of Joshua's army. I mean, you think about wintertime right now, like forget needing to get a really nice snowblower. We got to just figure out how to, how to get some of this sort of like meteoro- meteorological uh, things happening where, where the hail and the snow just falls on my yard and not on my driveway. <laughs> it's incredible. And then, okay, so on top of the Lord being the one who sends them into confusion, and on top of the Lord being the one who sends these like heat-seeking hailstones right upon the the enemy soldiers, on top of all this, as all this is going on, Joshua, with all the soldiers watching, stands up and boldly, faith-filled, prays this most astounding prayer. You see in verse 12, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. He calls out to the Lord of the universe, the one who stopped the Jordan in its tracks so that they could walk across on dry ground the one who brought the walls, the mighty walls of Jericho, tumbling down as they circled and cried out, the one who exposed with the roll of a dice, the one who had cheated upon God amongst the million of the people that are there, this Lord, Joshua calls out and says, oh God, with everybody hearing, stop the sun from moving in the sky. And God does the impossible again. Verse 13, so the sun stood still. The moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. What? Are you? No way. No way this is really happening. This can't be for real. This has got to be some kind of like metaphor or analogy or poetic language. We know this is not actually possible, right? Right? Can I just tell you, like the the author of the book of Joshua was no fool. I know it was a long time ago, but he knew how just as ridiculous this was as we feel like it is today. That's why he repeats it two more times, three times in total. Verse 13 says again, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down from about a full day. One more time for good measure. There has never been a day like it before or since a day when the Lord listened to men. This is truly like bananas. This is crazy. This cannot happen. That the sun stands still. Well, we, we know scientifically, it's not that the sun is actually moving. It's actually that we on this rock right here are moving. And the God of the universe, do you know what he actually, literally, mind-blowing did? He stopped our planet from spinning. He not only stopped and held our planet in, in, in its spot, he stops all of our solar system that is spinning from spinning. And he holds all of it 
on pause on the tips of his fingers just for this moment. The one who controls everything steps in with a giant, glorious, magnificent, mighty miracle. And I love the final cap-off sentence at the end of verse 14. Do you see it there? Do you see it in your Bibles? Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Yeah, you could say that again, couldn't you? I mentioned in this text there are two halves. In in the first half, verses 1 through 6, we saw the word king repeated 15 times in those first six verses. Those supposed mighty, strong, intimidating, controlling monarchs who were a big deal and had it all together, except they fade into the shadows and disappear. They vanish. The word word and the figures vanish out of the story and then did you catch did you catch the word that comes to the forefront in the second half did you see where the spotlight was zeroed in on from verses 7 to 14 seven times we see in these verses the lord the lord the lord is the one who sends his armies sends these armies running in terror. The Lord is the one who brings about the craziest meteorological event you could ever imagine, heat-seeking hailstones. The Lord is the one who takes out armies. The Lord is the one who stops the solar system. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh is front and center in the stage here. That's why that last statement in verse 14 so beautifully and succinctly summarizes, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. As I said at the beginning, it's so easy to just get used to these stories, to start to take them for granted, to read them and hold them at a distance and be like, yeah, like that's, that's an interesting that's a story and some words on the page. Eh. Let me say again, though, we read this passage to be gripped by the greatness of God and to see so clearly this is the hand of God at work, friends. This is the hand of God at work. We read this text and the entire point is for us to be like, no way. There's no way this is possible. There's no explanation possible with all of human understanding and what we know that this could ever happen. Exactly. But as Jesus once said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We are to see here in God's word with crystal clear, undeniable, unmistakable clarity, friends. This is a story of the hand of God at work. The only explanation for what we have just read here, for it to be possible, is that Almighty God stepped in and moved. This passage is a glory story that could only be accomplished, only be accomplished 
by the giant, glorious, magnificent, mighty hand of God. Do you see that, friends? Do you, do you see that? And, and, and as we see that, this leads to our second major, urgent, vital takeaway from this passage. We must therefore give God the glory that he deserves. We, we are led to grab on to texts like Psalm 150 and, and declare out for, with, with the psalmist these words, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with the tambourine and with dancing. Praise him with the strings and the flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with the resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Friends, from your homes today, Do you see in front of you, with beautiful clarity, the hand of God? And and is it leading you to fall on your knees and fall on your face and lift up your hands and say, wow, this really happened. God, you really did this. Praise you, Lord. This is what our text of Scripture is to lead us to do today. My guess is, though, my guess is, for some, maybe for many, you hear all of this, you read all of this, and you're like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. Like, wow, that's cool that God did that. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Pretty crazy story. I can agree. Wow, yeah. But I don't know if I can really get as worked up as as you're talking about it, this, I mean, it's, it's just a story from a long, long time ago on a place far, far away, right? On a page that we're reading. Our perspective on our Bibles, our own faith experience is kind of like, you know, that stain in the carpet that at first you were really irritated when you dropped that plate of spaghetti But now, ever since, you've just kind of almost forgotten that it's even there. It just fades in the background, and you don't even really notice anymore. You just kind of take it for granted. It's like that experience where we've got all the clutter on our desk, and and it's all there, and at first it kind of irritated us, but now we just kind of don't even notice and don't even see it anymore. That's how our faith is so often. That's how we come to stories like this so often, isn't it? Where we just kind of, it almost like fades into the background and we just kind of move on with the rest of life. Like, yeah, I know it's there, but I don't know. But, we might say, if something crazy like this were to happen in my life, like that would be a totally different story, right? I mean, I can read the stories in here and yeah, that's incredible and wow, it's okay, it's interesting. But, but nothing like that's ever happened for me. Nothing like that's ever happened to my life. I've never had a glory story like that. But if I had a glory story like that, if I saw a victory like that happen with my own two eyes, do you have any idea then? Oh, for sure, then I would be fired up. For sure, then I would be excited and passionate. That would be incredible if I could just have a story like Joshua has. You ever felt that way? You feel that way even maybe right Now, oh my dear friends, brothers and sisters, I need to tell you, I need to tell you, the the two lessons we are learning from God's word today are not just about Joshua in ancient times. 
they are true for you and true for me. These two lessons that we need to, to see the hand of God at work with profound clarity and that we need to give God the glory that he deserves. This is not just about Joshua. This is about you and about me. I know maybe you have lost sight of this. Maybe it's kind of faded into the background and you've just kind of avoided or, or neglected or it's not really capturing your attention. I know that it's easy to see this as an ancient, irrelevant story, not really impactful in my day and in my life and in my work and in my family and in my kids. I, I get it, but you have to know, you have to know that you have experienced and seen an even greater glory story, wartime victory than Joshua ever did. Did you know that? Did you know that? Do you see, friends, how giant and glorious and magnificent and mighty Jesus' victory for you really is? Do you, do, you, do you grasp how actually significant the victory that you've had the chance to be a part of, or today you can be invited in to receive an experience, is for you, brother, sister, friend. If you think creating a stampede of Amorite soldiers and raining down some hail from heaven and, and, and setting them free in this way by making the sun stand still. If you think that's impressive, let us think for a moment as we come to the end of our time about what Jesus has done for you and for me against our enemies. You and I, we have a way more impressive army waging war against us. Do you know that? The trifecta of enemies of sin, death, and Satan are standing on your doorstep laying siege against you every single day. Every single one of us. Sin, death, and Satan are three grand enemies coming after us, trying to destroy us. Sin, our hearts are bent to rebellion and turning away from the ways of life and truth. That's what sin is. And we all, left to ourselves, are stuck. We are enslaved. We are bound up in this constant trap to go towards our own rebellion away from the Lord. We never find a way out left to ourselves. There is no person who will set us free, who can set themselves free. We are warped in this. We also fight against death. Our bodies ache in the anguish of death. A broken world from every front surrounds us and confronts us with death. We hear and we see and we are hit by war and cancer, pollution and COVID, ALS and old age. No matter how many vaccines, Hospitals, scientists, research studies are thrown at it. No one has the power to overcome death. No one has the power to defeat death in a head-to-head -head victory. Have you ever met a person who has won that fight? Then there's Satan. 
sin, death, and Satan. Satan, the mighty angel of God, powerful and brilliant, turned evil and wicked. Before time began, he lived and served and heard the very word of God in the very presence of Almighty God until he turned his back in rebellion upon God. and was cast down. He roams the world seducing and ruling as a vile father trying to oppress and spew lies upon lies upon lies in our ears. Friends, these are our enemies. Outside of your gates, outside of your walls, barging in sin, death, Satan. And friends, these are these are so much stronger than those Amorite kings. These are so much stronger adversaries. The, 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 the pile that is stacked against us is so much more dire than Joshua or the Gibeonites were facing in that moment. And if you think that Joshua's victory in Gibeon and along the roads is amazing, friends, it's nothing nothing compared to the victory of Jesus Christ for you and for me. Think about it. These three enemies that are waging war against us, Jesus went and took all of them out. He was tempted to sin, and yet he resisted at every turn. He was perfectly holy, 1 Peter 2. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He went face to face with death and was tortured on the cross, but death could not hold him down. Listen to what 2 Timothy chapter 1 says, this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He went toe-to-toe with Satan, and he crushed him on the cross. Colossians 2, God forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them on the cross. Friends, Jesus crushed sin, smashed death, and utterly decimated Satan. Our three trifecta mighty enemies, Jesus came in and led a victory unlike any victory we have ever seen for you and for me. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. Those powerful, mighty enemies against you have been overcome because Jesus came for you to give you victory, friend. Today, today, if you have given your life to Jesus, oh, how we rejoice in this because this is our story. We have a victory story. We have a war story of incredible freedom and and mighty, marvelous, majestic, amazing miracle upon miracle for you and for me. If you have not given your life to Jesus, guess what, friend, today? Today, you can have that story. 
Because every single one who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Every single one who gives their life to Jesus receives by faith this incredible gift of victory in Jesus. Oh, friends, I want you to see today, not with apathetic sort of eyes, but with fresh clarity in ways you've never seen before. Wow. When we look at Joshua here, look at the hand of God at work and how I can't but praise him. But even more than that, in your own life and in mine, look at the hand of God at work. Look at what Jesus has done to give us victory. And oh, friends, I can't do anything but sing out praises to the one who came to set me free.